0: Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 4, as we uh, move into week 2 of our series, The Seven uh, Deadly Sins. And uh, uh, Last week, we uh, started with an introduction of something that I think most of us would rather not talk about, and that is our sin, and how it affects us, how it affects our relationship with God, how it affects our relationship with others, and even with ourselves, and and the impact that sin can have in our lives. And We talked about last week how during this series, we're going to look at seven particular sins. Uh, This list of of sins doesn't find itself uh, comprehensively in a scripture where you would go and say, okay, uh, the seven deadly sins are the following in a certain passage of scripture. But we know passages like Proverbs 6 tells us a list of sins that God says are detestable. And many of these sins are found in that list. Galatians chapter 5 gives another list of sin. Many of these that are found in that list and say that these are uh, unbecoming of a follower of Jesus Christ. And then there's mention upon mention of each of these sins in different passages of Scripture or evident in the lives of other people. Now why would we spend uh, seven weeks focusing in on seven particular sins? Well, the church fathers, early in the uh, beginning of the church, uh, they wanted to find a way and needed to find a way to articulate... What were some of the vices that we as Christians needed to steer clear of? And there was a reason uh, why this list became so famous. A guy by the name of Evagrius uh, um, Ponticus was the creator of this list of sins in 429. And uh, what he articulated was uh, the reason why this list of sins were needed. Uh, a couple of things you need to recognize. As Christians back in the 4th century, uh, they didn't have what we have, and that is the holy scriptures in our hands. And even if they did have this, because many didn't, there were few copies uh, of the scriptures during that time. The printing press wouldn't be uh, brought about for another thousand years. That even if you had a written copy of the word of God, uh, many people couldn't read. And so the pastors of that day uh, found ways that would become memorable and easy for people to remember. Why would they pick these seven sins? Why would these seven sins be the ones they would focus their time? and attention on. The early church viewed these seven sins as kind of the source of all other sins. In many ways, uh, one uh, church writer once put it that these are the large branches of the sin tree, of which all the twigs and smaller branches feed from. These are, in essence, those those large branches which feed all others. And we're going to learn about how the issue of pride uh, feeds all other sins in many ways. And so they saw these sins as a source, and as the precursor to all other sorts of sins. Now this has held on. I don't know if Evagrius thought that this would would last as long as it did, but 1,500 years later we still have movies about the seven deadly sins, books are written about the seven deadly sins, and I learned this week with the help of one of our attenders that one of the most famous TV shows that you know uh, was a personification of the seven deadly sins. Would you believe it? Maybe you already know this and I just was blind to it, that the writer and producer of the show Gilligan's Island built the whole premise of his uh, storyline of that group of people uh, as a personification of the seven deadly sins. Notice on the screen you've got anger by the skipper. Every episode the skipper's getting angry, right? He's filled with frustration, he's overflowing with anger. Gilligan uh, was known to be a glutton, really not caring about life, just consuming and, and enjoying. Then we have envy. Marianne was always envious of what Ginger had, her good looks, her charisma and all of that. Ginger was a personification of lust. Then we had the millionaire who was known for his greed, his wife who did nothing but kind of just hang out was the picture of sloth. And then the professor who was always the one who had the answer for everything was a personification of pride. Now I was surprised as I continued to research this that uh, the man, his name was Schwartz. He was uh, the producer and writer of also TV shows like the Brady Bunch had a deep and profound relationship with Jesus Christ and in uh, the writing of Gilligan's Island he said that he wanted to in a very tangible and easy way to understand uh, the understanding of what sin does and I was mesmerized by what he came up with he said the first thing when he wrote it he wanted to recognize that sin always keeps you longer than you want to be there right How long was that tour supposed to be? Sing it with me. A three-hour tour. How long did they stay there? A whole lot longer. And isn't that true of sin? Sin advertises that it's a short little sweet ride uh, of some fun and enjoyment and it always drags out longer than we wanted to. It seems to rear its ugly head long after that takes place. Now here's another thing that he said which I thought was interesting. They were all uh, bound up on this island of sin, okay, but all of them for different reasons. Seven individuals, all dealing with their own particular sin. Now in a group this size, we all recognize two very important truths. Number one, I want you to articulate this very clearly in your own heart, you're all sinners, all right? every single one of us now I want you and I know there's not as many in this service as there was in the first service but I want you to find someone in your area look around I want you to pick out someone in your area and I want you to point at them and I want you to articulate we don't do this very often but I think you'll have fun with this articulate to the person closest to you you're a sinner I want you to do that use your finger and point at them okay right. does that make you feel better boy that man is so refreshing right There's something refreshing on telling someone the truth speaking the truth now Here's what I want the person next to you that you pointed to I want you to point back and say and so are you Okay All right Here's the truth for all have sinned we learned last week and fall short of the glory of God all means all but here's the thing We all struggle with our own propensity and inclination and drive to particular sins. The inhabitants of Gilligan's Island were not sinners all sinning the same sin. They had their own issue. And in a room this size, we recognize that we're all sinners, but we all struggle with particular sins. And here's what the devil loves to do. The devil loves for you to belittle or to lessen your sin and widen someone else's sin. So you may deal with this little sin over here and and it's palatable and and it's understandable and you can speak it away uh, through all sorts of uh, uh, words of refinement. But what about that big sin that that person sitting next to you has? Oh, they're really a sinner. Look how evil and dirty and nasty they are. But we're all sinners and while our propensity or inclination may be towards particular sins We all find ourselves in great need of a savior The final thing that this writer and producer said which I thought was important Was that they were perpetually lost That is that they couldn't get off the island themselves That they worked and worked and worked and how true is that of the scriptures? that as sinners We can try to clean ourselves up. We can try to reform ourselves. But the Bible says even as sinners, our righteous deeds are but filthy rags before a holy God. And we need someone to come and rescue us in our lostness. And so why do we spend so much time focusing on a series on sin? Because we all struggle with it. And if we want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and by the blood of Jesus Christ, we must understand what our sin is. And what God has called us to be as his followers. This morning we're going to look at a case study in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 is going to tell us the story of a prideful man who thinks that he's the greatest in the world. And as a result of that God is going to warn this man and he's going to speak truth to this man through one of his own prophets. But this king won't listen and God will exact his judgment and his punishment on a, on a prideful man. And in turn, what we're going to learn is that that pride turns to humility. And instead of glorying in self, he glories in God. Daniel chapter 4, you can find that passage in your pew Bibles uh, on page 741, tells the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar at that time is the greatest man on the face of the earth. There's no one greater than King Nebuchadnezzar. He's built a phenomenal kingdom, a great kingdom. He's taken over most of the known world. His empire reaches, if you will, from sea to shining sea. He has the world at his disposal. And he now is beginning to recognize and and recognize how great he really is. But he has a dream. And Daniel chapter 4 begins with a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And and one of his slaves, one of the people that he had conquered, Daniel, from the land of Israel is brought in because he is one who is known to interpret dreams, interprets the dream for this king. And he says, listen, your kingdom's going to be taken from you. Your kingdom is going to be taken from you on account of your pride. And if you don't get your pride under control, if you don't honor God, the one who gives all things and enables you to be the king that you are with the things that you have and the power that you uh, use to control people, if you don't put that at the foot of God, then God will bring forth his judgment. Does the king heed the news? No. He doesn't listen to the words of a righteous man. And what we're going to learn is what takes place. In verse 27, I'm sorry, verse 28, here's how it starts out. It says, Now all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. What came upon him? Everything that Daniel had warned him of. At the end of 12 months, one year after what Daniel had said to him, King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, let me just stop there How often have you said something that while it's leaving your lips you wish you could take it back? How you wish you could take a fishing pole and reel it out there to try to grab it and pull it back. King Nebuchadnezzar is speaking these great words of pride. And before they leave his lips, there fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You're losing your kingdom, the voice from heaven says. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you will be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I... At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you as a sinful people. We recognize that now more than ever as we devote time and attention to our sinfulness. And we recognize by this case study that there's a lot of King Nebuchadnezzar in each and every one of us, including the one who prays to you now. Lord, we are filled with pride. And we recognize and know that this pride is something that is subtle. It's a pride that seemingly is is something that gets in our way with our relationship with you and others remind us of the truth of the insidious nature of this sin and how it needs to be rooted out in our lives and by the power of jesus christ we can find victory over it empower us by your holy spirit to hear your word to heed it and live differently as a result in christ's name we pray amen and amen my message this morning is entitled pride the mother of all sins One author puts it this way. Pride is a cosmic crime. It has the dubious distinction of standing alone atop the list of the seven deadly sins because it is, in essence, the source of all sins. That is, it gives birth to all others. Now, I'm not sure if that's completely true, but it seems to make sense. Pride, of course, is the oldest of all sins, Uh, Second and third might be adultery and lying and all manner of other sins. Pride finds itself even before the creation of the world. We know that Lucifer, before the creation of the world, uh, stood in the presence of God as the chief cherub. Because of his splendor, because of his glory, he makes this decision in his heart that he is better than God and that he will rebel against God. And a third of the angels agree with him in his coup d'etat and fall with him. We know that Adam and Eve, our first, uh, if you will, ancestors, they would fall to the sin of pride. Remember what the uh, serpent tells them, what he promises them? That in the day that they eat of the fruit, they will become like God. They wanted to be like God. They believed they should be like God. And as a result of that, they rebelled and left the truth and goodness of God's righteous decrees and fell prey to a lie. Only a couple chapters later would a corporate group of people in a city called Babel, they would gather together. And what was their reasoning for building a great building, a great uh, uh, tower that would reach the heavens? To make a great name for themselves. And God would punish their pride in trying to be something of greatness when God alone should be worshipped and praised. You see, it has been said that while all sins lead us away from God, only pride seeks to elevate oneself above God. I want you to recognize this morning the insidious nature of the sin of pride. And I want you to think about it this way. Imagine if you're at the beach, I know you all want to be there right now, and you're at the beach and you've got some time and you're sitting around in the sand and you want to create something, so you create a a figure, a being in the sand. You fashion them and you give them uh, the ability to speak back and forth to you. And so you've built this sand figure, this creature in the sand, and this creature now speaks back to you and says, hey, I just want you to know something, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. I'm more powerful than you I I can do all that you can do now. I'm sure in this imaginary story You would look to the sand figure and say wait a minute. I created you and you're small. I'm big You don't have life without me So it is the story of creation of man out of the dust of the ground. We were created God created us. He breathed life into us. And you know what we do? We look to the God of the universe, the God who created everything seen and unseen, and we say, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm greater than you. I am in all ways more majestic and awesome than you are. And here's how we do it. Every time we choose to go our own way instead of His, we tell God, I've got a better way. And so it's amazing that creatures of the mud would tell the God of the universe that we're better than he is. Why would anybody do that? Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, while sin may be uh, the most grievous of all sins, it is also likewise the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all transgressions. And so we fall to it. And sadly, we see it in the world of Hollywood. We see it in the world of sports. Uh, we we watched an icon named Muhammad Ali just recently die. And he would utter at all times, I'm the greatest. There was no one better than me. I gotta imagine in the young heart of a guy like Michael Phelps, after all these gold medals that he's won. There isn't a, a, a sprouting of pride, at least at minimum, tempting him to say he's the greatest. And quite frankly, he's got a good argument in some ways, right? You see, it's easy for us to see in the world the greatness that people project. I saw an interview not too long ago where Charles Barkley was talking about his relationship with Michael Jordan. And someone said, hey, you guys are close friends. You guys still hang out? He says, No. And he says, here's why. I got tired of Michael telling me he was the best at everything. I couldn't deal with it anymore. He was always the smartest, always the brightest, always the best, and it just got tiring. But here's the thing. Pride comes to the church door as well. It impacts each and every one of us. And we've got to call it what it is. Sin. Rebellion against the God who created us and died on the cross on our behalf. So how do we address it? First of all, we've got to understand it. Notice the definition this morning. The definition, what is pride? Throughout my study, I sought for a very succinct, concise definition of pride, and I really couldn't find it. Of course, I went to Webster's Dictionary, and Webster defines it just simply as an inordinate self-esteem or a feeling that you are better or more important than others. I said, okay, that's that's good, but there's got to be more to pride than that. I found this quote by a writer, John Maxwell. He put it this way. He says there are two kinds of pride, both good and bad. Good pride represents our dignity and self-respect. Bad pride is the deadly sin of superiority that reeks of conceit and arrogance. So let's start, first of all, trying to define what good pride is. I wish there was a different word for it, uh, but there really isn't. We talk about being proud of things. And there are some things that I believe God allows us, in His grace, to be proud of. You've got a project at work. And you're working on this project, and this project is is going to uh, be the rise and fall of a customer saying yes or no to your product. And you've invested time and energy on this product, and you get the phone call tomorrow from the boss, and the boss says, They bought it. They're ordering this many things, man. We did it. We we closed the deal. And you hang up the phone, and there's that feeling in you, that feeling of yes. I did a good job. Yes, I accomplished the task. I want you to know that in all my reading of scripture, that is not a sin. That's a sense of accomplishment. And where do we get that feeling? Where does that feeling come from? If it's not sin, where does it come from? It comes from God who on the six days of creation after he accomplished something said, it was good, it was good, it was good. God wants us to take pride in the things that we do. Now we need to do so in moderation, of course, but it is good to feel a sense of accomplishment. I feel good when a catering job goes well. I feel good when I preach a sermon that I believe impacted the lives of people. It's okay to say, hey, I I think I did a good job. I think I accomplished what was asked of me. How about with regards to pride with others? Recently, I was on a phone call with a person who was asking me about the church he had never met this you guys of the church he's never been to a service and he was saying tell me about your church and and i want to be honest with you i gushed about the church i said man we've got a church filled with wonderful people and god's doing great things through the church and god's using the sacrifice and the faithfulness of a of a broken group of people to change and transform lives now, should I have been chastised? Hey, hey you, you shouldn't be proud of those guys. Don't say nice things about them. No, the Bible shows us over and over again that God delights in his people, that he revels in the good things his people do, that he announces them upon one generation to another. It is good for us to affirm and reflect upon the good and praiseworthy things we see of those around us. How about my children? Is it good for me to tell my children I'm proud of them? Absolutely. It should, again, be done in moderation. I said in the first service, and I'll say here, I should never say to my children, you're the best children in the world. That would be a lie. It's just not true. I love my kids. There's gotta be better ones somewhere out there, right? It just has to be. But here's what I can tell you without any joking aside. I have the express and wonderful honor of being the dad to three of some of the greatest kids. I love them. And I'm proud that they carry my name. I'm proud that I can call them my children. And that's okay. It's okay to delight in them. It's okay to to be proud of their accomplishments. And so be careful. Don't be so pietistic to say, well, I can never say that I can be proud because being prideful is a sin and, and I can never feel a sense of accomplishment when I get handed that diploma that I've done something that is praiseworthy. Rejoice in that. Revel in it. But recognize even within the noble side of that word pride is a slippery slope to the negative. What's the negative? Notice, I'll give you a definition. Pride is a misdirected and misapplied love towards self instead of God and others. So we've been told we are called to love. Jesus was asked, what what command is the greatest? And Jesus says, I can sum up all the law and the prophets in this statement. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? Okay. Honor God, love God. He is the number one relationship. Second relationship to that is to love your neighbors as yourself. Pride takes that and wages all-out war against those two loves we're supposed to have. So it's misapplied and misdirected love. Instead of our love going vertical and horizontal, it comes inward. And it says, I'm going to love self and I'm going to take care of self and I'm going to minister to self and I'm going to make sure self is number one and I'm going to do all that I need to, to make sure that I'm taken care of. And I may do that. I may take care of myself at the detriment of my relationship with God and others. And so notice this cause, this love causes us to elevate and establish oneself above others and even God. And it's a detriment to our worship of God and it will cause divisions with others. How does pride live itself out? It seeks self-exaltation, self-promotion, and self-justification. What it means is put the spotlight on me. What it means is make sure the cameras are always on me. I'm the most important figure. When I walk into a room, everybody should stop what they're doing and see. When I talk, people should listen. When I need something, I should get it right away the way I want it. That's what pride does. But notice, pride has a subtle form to it. And some of us will say, I'm not, that, I'm not that way. I don't think that way. But some of us, in a more subtle way, use things like self-degradation, self-demotion, and self-condemnation. And what you begin to do is someone starts getting praise over here. Oh, so-and-so has done a wonderful job. And so-and-so, man, they really have a knack at this, that, or the other thing. And you're over here in the corner. And you're sitting there saying, well, I may not be that good and I may not be good as him, but what about me? What about my feelings? You know, hey, I'm working hard. Hey, hey, bring the spotlight over here. Stop putting it over there. How about me? And so we use these things as a pursuit to move the spotlight off of others and onto ourselves. We cry, we moan and groan to make sure people know how bad our life is so they may feel sorry for us and so that they may see us instead of being able to see others. To put it into a picture, what this definition is, notice the next slide. Pride is elevating I. It's elevating I. And so any time that you wonder, am I sinning, how much are you putting the attention on you? how important are your preferences how important is your way do you always have to be right do you always have to be first do you always have to be the one who gets the credit you see our culture says we're to look to the mirror and we are to ask the question mirror mirror on the wall who's the greatest of them all I know what my mirror says you're one cool dude you're great you're wonderful you do a great job at this you do a great job at that let me let me spend a little more time i I like spending time in the mirror right but the bible says when we look into the mirror of the scriptures it tells us we're broken it tells us we are people in need of grace it tells us we're people in need of saving of rescuing So we need to recognize this morning that there is a definition of pride and we need to recognize where we are sinning with regards to this. But where does this pride live? Notice the domain. Notice the domain. In Daniel chapter 4, we see that Daniel has given forth a warning. Twelve months before this takes place, Daniel has warned the king, your pride's getting the best of you. Get control of your pride, because if you don't, God's judgment is coming. God gives grace. Does what God... Is what God does a heinous thing? Yeah. He took a king and he made him eat like an ox. He grew feathers on his body, uh, fingernails like eagle's talons. I mean, what God does is, man... That's harsh. But let us not forget God gives grace. For 12 months, God says, turn from your pride. Turn from your pride. And right now, some of us, God is speaking by his Holy Spirit to our heart, saying, stop thinking of yourself so highly. Stop having to be number one. You don't have to be. Serve others. Honor others. And we choose not to. So what happens? King Nebuchadnezzar for 12 months doesn't heed the warnings of God. And he's walking along his palace. And he starts looking about and notice what he says. He says in verse 28, or verse 29, at the end of 12 months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? Let's stop there. The first domain of pride is Power. Power. King goes and he starts looking out at all that's taking place. And he looks at all that's that he has in front of him and he concludes one thing. I am great. I'm great. Look at all that I've created. And let me tell you, Nebuchadnezzar, if anyone had reason from a human standpoint to think that he was great, it was Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the greatest builders in ancient times. 49 different buildings in northern iraq have the inscription today of king nebuchadnezzar king of babylon it's true this guy built amazing things he built 17 religious temples in the city and suburbs of babylon he had two great walls that surrounded the city the outer wall was wide enough for chariots to pass each other that's that's a wide wall He installed great fortifications, fountains, and roadways, and canals. He had sewer systems in a time and place where that was not even heard of. He had business districts and areas of commerce. And notice as he looks out to it, He he uses the phrase, of which I have built. Here's the problem when a prideful attitude gets into our heart. We look at something that has been accomplished, and we take an inordinate amount of possession that we were the one that created it. So what happens? We look at what takes place, and we say, look at this great Babylon. Did he have a part in it? Yep. He's the king. Of course he had a part in it. Did he place the rock? No. Was he the mason who leveled the rock and put the mortar down? No Was he the one who oversaw the project? Was he the one who created the architectural plans for this great city? Probably not He played a small part in a great great uh, scheme of work that was done And so we need to recognize this morning That whatever accomplishments we have Whatever God has enabled us to have uh, power over Comes as a result of other people working hard as well and so maybe someone says, hey, uh, Mal, you've, you've done a great job with that ministry. You've done a great job with that project. Are you quick to say, well, yes, I have worked hard on it. I was the mastermind behind it. And not giving praise, not giving any kind of adulation to those who work side by side along. Nowhere does he say, I was a part of a great team. Nowhere does he say that the people of Babylon helped build this great city. A prideful heart says look at what I have done notice possessions he says I've done all of this to make a royal residence he says this is for me all that I've built all that I've created all the palaces all the roadways all the fountains all the gardens all of the things that I've created are for me And some of us this morning have the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar in our own lives, because God has given us the ability to create wealth, to create capital, and we take that capital and yes, we need to use that capital to take care of ourselves, but what we do is, what God has given us, we keep for ourselves. And we say, this is all for me. And so one of the ways that you can see if you're a prideful individual this morning is look at your last month's expense account. Where did you spend your money? Did you spend your money on you? Where does your money ever find its way to other people? How is it being a blessing to other people? How is it furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is it furthering the help and, and blessing of people who are less fortunate? If you can look at your monthly account and say, "Well, uh, the house is about me, the cars about me, my clothes are about me, my entertainment's about me, my food's about me, my vacations about me," then you're more prideful than you know, because Jesus said, "Where your treasure is, there your heart is also." And so, are you amassing for yourself possessions? Now, everybody needs a house. We need cars. I'm not being legalistic in that way. But if there's no outlet of where your gifts are being given to other people, then you have created a royal residency for yourself. Your possessions are all about you. And the Bible makes it clear that our possessions are gifts of stewardship for us to minister and bless those around us the final domain is seen not just in his power and his possessions but also his position why does he do all this notice the phrase for the glory of my majesty all that i have all that you see anytime anybody walks into the city of babylon you know what they're going to know i built it it's for me so when you see the great city of Babylon, don't speak of the great people of Babylon. Don't speak of the wonderful services that, that this great city offers to the people of Babylon, the, the tranquility that it brings. No, the only thing you should think about is when you see all that I have and all that I've done, you need to recognize and praise and, 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 and adore the greatness of the king who did it all. How many of us this morning have bought houses... And cars and have pursued nameplates or awards So that people will know we are people of position That we try to tell people that we're something That we glory about how great we are that we use our kids accomplishments Look how great I am. My kids are on the honor roll. Look at how great of a parent. I am My kid is great at baseball. Look how great I am. My kid's the best musician in the in the school Look at our house. Look at our cars. We don't drive nothing but the new stuff, the great stuff, with all the gadgets. Why? Because I want you to know I'm an important individual. Why do I have to wear the name brand clothes? Because I don't want the kids next to me to think that I'm not as cool as they are. You see, we do all these things because we want people to think that we're something. That we hold a higher position. Notice what God says. God says in the text, it is me who's the most high. It is God who rules the kingdoms of men, who gives them what he will. You see, when we struggle with Christ, we believe we are the main character in God's story. He's not. We're not. He is. The main character of God's story of human history is Jesus Christ. And when pride enters our heart, what we will begin to do is we will take on that we are the main character, we are the star of the show when we're not. So what happens? Notice the dangers that can come. You see, God doesn't stand idly by and let us speak or think words of pride. He doesn't allow our pride to go undealt with. So what does he do? He deals with the king. Notice in an instantaneous way. While the words are still in the mouth of the king, God brings judgment. What does he do? It says for seven periods of time. We don't know if that's seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years. But here's what I will contend. Seven minutes having to act like an animal would be too long, right? Right? Thank you. Okay? So we don't know how long it is, but, but what a terrible punishment. He acts as an animal. He's on his belly, he's growing hair, growing talons, eating like a, an oxen in wood, utterly humiliated. And I want you to understand, God addresses. And at times, he's very gracious in giving us times of warning and giving us times of opportunity to repent. And other times before we know it, God will bring forth his judgments. When I was a young man, 24 years of age I was serving here in the church in a lay capacity and Every ministry that I had my hands in was really doing well. It was successful And I remember having a conversation with one of the leaders of the church at the time and they said to me Tim man You've got the Midas touch Every time you're involved in a ministry it turns to gold and I want to I want to confess to you in that moment At 24 years of age. I said bring it tell me more tell me more yes i am great yep yes i am good yeah i'm glad you noticed that i'm glad finally starting to get some press on that i'm I'm just being honest with you and i remember in that moment god said really so here i'm listening to these great words and i'm saying you know just i I can man i leaned back in the chair i was enjoying it this was wonderful fed my ego and god's sitting there going really but all do you really think you're that great? You really think you're that awesome? Mhm. You see, uh, the phrase ego, I don't know if you know it, but a great acronym of ego is edging God out. Edging God out. And that's what I was doing. I was edging God out. God, get off the throne. Hey, it's praise Tim time. And I remember in that moment, have you ever have you ever had a moment happen in your life where you knew at some point you were gonna to have to give an account for it? I remember walking out in the parking lot, this parking lot over here going, you know what, maybe I should go back and say, you know what, I appreciate everything you said, but I gotta be honest with you, it's all about God. I remember God convicting me of that, but you know what, I got in the car and I told my wife, you're not gonna believe the nice things that were told about me. And I remember Amanda had pause, and she, like a good wife, yeah, I live with you, you're not that great. Okay? But I let it simmer. I let it just, man, I loved it. And when, whenever I didn't feel good about myself, I'd go back to those words of that, of that kind. And I think good-natured individual. I don't think what they were doing was per se bad. I think they were trying to encourage, but I took it and I fed my ego with it. And I moved God out and I thought, really, I could do this. And then fast forward a year or so, and I made the pastor here of the church. And I remember, I remember a unique time where God made it clear to me through the reading of Scripture, your heart is filled with pride. And he brought me back to that moment. And he said, you had an opportunity to give me the glory. You had the opportunity to give me the honor. And you took it for yourself. And what would transpire for the next year was one of the hardest years of my life. Everything I did came difficult. And I knew... That God was disciplining for that moment because I remember how evil my heart was that I deserved the praise And God for a year worked on this heart of this preacher And he taught me things You know what he taught me? I'll never forget. I was doing my devotions and I came to the story of Balaam and how God used a donkey To correct people And I remember I'm reading that, and I'm meditating on this this story that I've known since I was a little kid. And God said, you know what, Tim? I'm in the business of using donkeys, and you're one of them. You see, when you know that you're God's donkey, you're not going to think too highly of yourself, right? You're just a donkey in the hands of the majestic God. And God has used that reminder that I'm not to edge them out that I'm to use my opportunity and the gifts that God gives me to be a reflector of God's glory and God's grace. And so when the spotlight comes on me, I need to be quick to put that up. And I'll tell you, there's temptations all about. I'm living a moment in my life where it's it's very tempting to think that I'm pretty great. And i got to continually be reminded that while people may say nice things about me, I am the donkey in God's army. That God's using me for his grace and his purposes to reflect his glory. But here's what happens when we choose pride. It It defies God. It defies God. The Westminster Catechism of Faith says that the chief goal of man is to glorify God. Listen, you and I can't glorify God when we're glorifying self. We can't make God great in our world if we're busy making us great in the world. We can't speak praises of God while speaking praises of ourselves. So when God is taken off his throne, we put ourselves on it. Listen, when thoughts of pride come into our life, what we do is a coup d'etat against God. Get off your throne, God. You don't deserve it. I do. Notice it defiles man. Pride like every other sin condemns man Proverbs 16 5 let me read that passage write these two passages down i'll go to them for us Proverbs 16 5 And proverbs 21 4 Proverbs 16 5 says everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the lord Oh my pride's not that bad just because I think higher of myself than I ought to it's not that bad God calls it an abomination and you know what the prideful thing is? We think that other things that God calls an abomination are really sinful. Well, our prideful hearts are just as bad. Proverbs 21 5. I'm sorry, 21 4. Proverbs, Proverbs 21 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart are the lamp of the wicked, and they are sin. It's a sin. We've got to deal with it. The judgment would come upon the king because of his pride. And you and I are testing the heart of God when we think thoughts of grandeur about ourselves. Next, pride divides society. The great preacher of a generation ago, Adrian Rogers, put it this way. There has never been a war, an argument, a scuffle, a divorce, or a church split that pride wasn't a major factor. We're the problem. And when we think we're better than we really are, not only will it ruin our relationship with God because we throw him off his throne, but anytime God isn't rightly onto the throne of our hearts, we will always have issues with our brothers. That's why the book of Proverbs chapter 13 verse 10 says, pride brings contention. Proverbs 28, 25 says, an arrogant man stirs up strife. You see, we can't be proud. I think we're going to have good relationships with other people. It is going to divide us. It is good for us to have a level of patriotism as a group of citizens of the United States. I think the Bible preaches that there's a nationalism we should be happy about. God created boundaries, and, and he created where we would live, and we should take pride in that. But that pride of nationalism can lead us to all kinds of sins where we treat other countries less than ourselves. It divides. Racism is a sin of pride. That's why we call it white pride and black pride and brown pride and all the pride that we think of. Because what it does is it separates society and it says to me, I'm better than you are. For the Christian, it is an absolute It's absolute idiocy for us to be proud because it disobeys the scriptures. So as Christians, we affirm and uphold the teachings of this book and our master and savior who speaks and guides us and is the example for us. And what does our teacher say? If you want to be great in my kingdom, then you need to be a servant. If you want to be first in my kingdom, then you have to be last. And so we hear that and we affirm that and say, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to live that way. But then our pride says, but I'm number one. It's all about me. And then we say, as Christians, we want to be followers of Jesus Christ. We want to imitate Christ. And what do we learn in Philippians chapter 2? That though being uh, very God... Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So the one individual who has the right to be proud, the one individual who deserves all the glory, all the renown, all the fame, all the glory, all the newspaper clippings, all the accolades, all the parades, the one who deserves all of that, who could be proud and not be sinful, made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant and being obedient even unto death on a cross. It is, it is amazing that you and I as Christians, as attesters to this book and to this Savior, would think that we can be followers of Christ with the sin of pride running through our veins. Finally, it destroys souls. Give it enough time and it will destroy you. It did King Nebuchadnezzar. It ended all of that. Pride ultimately destroys all that it, it, it controls. It's a couple passages. Write these down. Proverbs fifteen twenty five. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Will. Not might, not may, not could, but will. He may do it in this life where he takes everything away from you. Where you test him enough where he says, you know what? You want to live life on your own? Then fine. It's on you. You make it work. Or it will happen in the life to come. Where God will stay, where you will stand before God and you will have told God throughout your life, your decisions will announce to God in the world, I'm in charge. I'm the one who gets to determine the direction of this vessel. I'm the one who, who is most important. I'm the master of the universe. And God says, listen, if you've not bowed the knee to the true and real master of the universe, Jesus Christ, then you will depart from me as a person of iniquity. We know that pride cometh before a fall and brings forth destruction. Will we heed the warnings of God before it's too late? Nebuchadnezzar didn't and experienced The judgment of God. But here's where God's grace comes. God's grace gives a second chance and Nebuchadnezzar is given a second chance notice back in Daniel chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar comes to his right mind and in verse uh, 34 at the end of the days I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for God your dominion is an everlasting dominion and your kingdom endures from generation to generation Nebuchadnezzar comes to his right mind he sees the Arab his ways and notice he heads in the direction he should go and the direction all of us should go and what does it involve first notice our direction that we should take begins by us honoring God as God Nebuchadnezzar stops talking about himself and he starts talking about the one who's really important and this is something that in some ways is really a bit subtle because what we need to do it doesn't take a lot of energy. It doesn't take a lot of work. But it does change a change of heart. So someone says, hey, you're great. You're awesome. The work you did or the accomplishments you've had or or, or your family or or what you possess, man, you've got a lot going for you. And in that moment, you've got a decision to make. Am I going to receive the glory or am I going to honor God? Am I going to honor him that he gave me life and breath and he gave me a mind and he gave me the gifts that I have and so I'm going to honor the God who gave me all of that. Let me tell you, start your morning tomorrow with the mentality that all that I've been given, Lord, I will honor you with it. When someone gives me praise, I will quickly deflect that praise and give you the honor that is due your name. How much are you honoring God as people honor you? Number two, humble yourself. Humble yourself. God had shown Nebuchadnezzar who was boss. And notice what what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, At the same time, my reason returned to me, verse 38. Or 36 and he says my kingdom and the glory and the splendor surrounded me my counselors came back they sought me I was established in my kingdom God in his grace restores Nebuchadnezzar back to his place and notice what he says now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble so here's the thing, either you're going to humble yourself or God's going to do it for you. And I will tell you, it's always better for you to do it. So how do you begin to humble yourself? Romans 12 verse 3 says, think of yourself with sober judgment. You aren't as great as you think you are. I'm not as great as I think I am. I don't care how great my mom says I am. She's biased. And I appreciate the kind words of a loving mom. But listen, I'm not as great as I think I am. I'm a very, 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 very small fish in a very, 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 very big pond. And for the Christian, it is unbecoming for us to be proud in who we are. If we really, truly recognize that we are sinners in need of God's grace, we ought to humble ourselves. We must look to the interest of others. Notice, we need to help others. We honor God, we humble ourselves, and we help others. Verse 27, just before our passage, we get a little bit of what was going on. Notice, Daniel says to King, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed that they may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. He had the unique opportunity to take his wealth, and to take his power, and to take his possessions, and divest those things into those who needed it. But he didn't. He kept it all for himself. And you and I have a decision. God has given us power. God has given us possessions. God has given us uh, all types of things that we can keep for ourselves and invest in our own lives and in in what we want, or we can begin to divest it into the lives of others. So God says, listen, Christian, I've given you all these gifts. I've given you and endowed you with all these things. And then he says over and over again, I want you to serve. I want you to give. I want you to use the gifts that I've given you to better others around you. The reason why we call the church to serve, why we believe every one of you should have a place of service in the body of Christ is it battles against pride. Because it takes that which I have and it says I want to give it to others. I want to serve others. I want to take the things that God has given me instead of keeping them for myself, for my own good, I want to divest it to others so that others may be blessed and others may be served. In better ways. Pride affected a great king. But sadly it affects many of us in far many ways. And because of it you and I stand condemned. But aren't you glad we have a savior. Who could have taken pride in himself but he didn't. Made himself nothing. Made himself obedient to death on a cross. And by doing so took our sin of pride and nailed it to the cross. And the blood that was shed, the humble blood that was shed on that cross washed away our sin of pride and by the Spirit's empowering now gives us a victory over it and enables us to humble ourselves instead of thinking we have to be lifted up. So we go with Christ as our model. We go as the Word of God is our guide and we say no to pride. Pride in the days to come. No to boastful thoughts about myself. No to elevating and edging God out and pursuing humility and pursuing the betterment of others and pursuing a a meek lifestyle instead of one that tells the world how great we really are. May you find victory. May we ask the Lord for each of us to find victory in our battle with pride in the days to come. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word and all that it teaches us. But Lord, especially on this subject of pride for which we all are trespassers and transgressors. Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves. We would humble ourselves, as the book of James says, under your mighty hand. That in due time you will lift us up. Lord, let us not seek the spotlight. Let us not seek the accolades of others. But recognize and know we serve an audience of one. And that your applause is all that we need. Lord, humble us. Let us heed your warnings of your scripture and humble ourselves so that we might uh, free ourselves of, of judgment that can come our way as a result of our sin. Empower us by your spirit to do so. And Lord, as we enter a new week, starting with school for many of our students, for another work week for many of us as adults, that we would seek to honor you and bring you glory because you're the only one who deserves it. Help us in those small ways to turn away from self and to exalt our Savior, we ask. It's in that Savior's name, Jesus Christ, that we give all of this to all the glory for the songs that have been sung, the prayers that have been lifted up, the sermon that's been preached. You deserve all the praise and we're glad to be a part of it. Now send us forth in peace. Send us forth with a heart to serve as we visit the ministry fair we ask in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.